this is really funny. Um, mm-hmm. Carrie Lake, it was on Steve Bannon's channel, I guess. And Mika, uh-huh. like, she confronted Mika and, and Morning Joe in like an airport, I think it's Palm Beach. <laughs> and she was just like, hey, like, I'm that lady that you always talk about. I wanted to put a face to the, the name, which is hilarious. And I guess she said that like Morning Joe is like super gracious, but Mika was not happy and started recording her surreptitiously. And she called her out on it. And apparently Mika's threatening to release the tapes because like Carrie Lake sounds so crazy. But I don't know, something tells me it's maybe um, not Carrie Lake that sounds crazy on that tape. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I would believe what people say about Mika. She's that DC Illuminati baby. She is something actually. We're the opposite in every way of Morning Joe. This is counter mockingbird programming <laughs> coming to you live. Or is it extremely deep cover? Ooh, I mean, in a way, I guess Michael Hoffman would say maybe, you know, we could be doing both. Oh, one of those unconsciously, I guess, you know, we could be occupying both spaces. I, I think am- the main lesson of the alt-right is that everyone is a fed. Or gay or both. I mean, <laughs> it's the real, I think that's the real rub of it all. I am joined this evening by the one and only Daddy Odette, Odette. I don't know why I always want to go with Odette. It's runs I do. Of- yeah, I think that too. It's it all. I can't remember the Genesis even. I think it's Odette, and then people would call me Dat, and then Daddy. That was the origin story. I love the Genesis, and I feel so just blessed and touched honestly to be joined by Ms. Deddy from Twitter once again. I feel like we had some interference this evening. This is this is very late for Deddy, so I really appreciate her being here. But I don't know, Deddy, we, we ran into some uh, turbulence getting ourselves off the ground this evening. I think that was my own personal computer <laughs> ineptitude, probably. Oh, Deddy, you're so naive. No, here's the first rule of schizodom. Always blame the feds, the government. Some kind of shadowy force definitely is responsible for everything wrong in your problems. I am very close to the Camp Hero Raider right now. They may be sending out waves, (laughs) interference waves. Daddy, thank you so much for joining us here this evening on Here Comes the Backlash. It's truly like the midnight hour. Uh, I'm really touched that you are here. I truly do mean that. Rather than waste your time with more gushing, which I could do truly all night long. No. You get this, like this midnight candle kind of burning. I know you have actually quite uh, an agenda here, but actually before we get started, I do actually want to say something. Daddy, you graced this program with, uh, you graced my program about a month ago. It was a great time. It was so much fun to talk to you and your daddy verse like responded in kind. What a splendid, I don't know, following you have some really delightful people kind of reached out, uh, very touching notes as well. I just have to say like, shout out to the daddy verse. You all are cool. No one really, no one, no negative response. No one harassed me. A few times I think people are thinking negative things and I'm very sensitive. So I can unfortunately feel your negative thoughts, listeners. So try to refrain you know, from that, I guess. But uh, Daddy, your your audience was really, or your fans and uh, I guess followers and mutuals were all really lovely. Um, well, so they must like you better than they like me because I never receive any of this positive affirmation. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be. Maybe it's the interference again with the feds. They're probably stealing yeah. your family. Everybody, please send me whatever you sent him. This is a very rude turn of events. Yeah, you know, maybe, you know, Diddy, maybe 
I don't know. I feel like we both actually give off on Twitter, perhaps like a, a little bit of an uncomfortable vibe some, in some ways. Uh, like my photos kind of terrifying, I guess, in a way. Yours is more appealing than it used to be. I don't know. Oh, maybe it's the squeaky voice. When they hear the squeaky voice, maybe they feel a little bit bad about some of the things they say to me. So when they heard me on your podcast, they they were willing to send you positive and possibly even glowing reviews. I would to say, I think you converted a couple, uh, I don't want to say anti-deadites, but I'm going to say there was a few people who maybe were not uh, fervently devoted to Deddy, and they are now. So I feel like we made some converts, and I think people did oh, very well spoken in a way that I think was... Um, you showed a lot of dimension and you were very, very caring to me. And I think it came across really well and you provide a lot of perspective. And I think people appreciated that that's doesn't come through for anybody on Twitter. That's not what it's about, you know? So I think getting to show like kind of that depth and character, which I think you possess quite a bit of, it was really nice for, I think people to see. And just for the record, I'm not actually trying to build a cult or <laughs> accrue devotees around myself. Okay, second rule of schizo, Daddy. You like you are absolutely always trying to build a cult. Don't listen to everyone. Sign up for the Daddy cult. We'll get it. We'll we'll talk to her offline. Okay, Daddy. Enough joking around. You you're here. You've got tons yes. of work. You've done so much. This and yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to waste another second with my crazed ramblings. We can do that on another several hours of this podcast. Daddy, what do you want to start this evening? I know you did so much preparation. Okay, so I was trying to think how to bridge what we spoke about last time, which was a lovely conversation with several topics you and I have privately talked about. And I thought it would be an interesting jump off point to speak about maybe a little bit more in depth what I think causes some of the mm, Twitter altercations or misunderstandings and then explain a little bit the background of my personal viewpoint on historical, geopolitical, and economic processes, and then relay that to the 20th century, which has several areas I know that you have mentioned to me you would really like to delve in deeper. But I think for everyone, it would probably help to meet in the middle. So I wanted to personally say that I think a lot of the misunderstandings that happen are born out of different artifacts and the different contexts from which we formulate our worldviews. I've noticed that sometimes allegations of conspiracy are levied at people referencing what to me are rather fairly standard and proven historical facts and cycles while people who sometimes present a historical information or ideology as truth then label any counter-argument to that as being a form of sabotage or apologia or anti-truth. And then, of course, we can always go into the rabbit hole of forever arguing over the substance of truth and material reality. Um, but I think prioritizing what has been over what we wish to be tends to bear more fruit for material progress. For example, acknowledging that in the current timeline, there's been the rise and fall of empires and multiple civiliz civilizations across different landscapes, religions, and levels of technology. 
have all risen and fallen and are connected by sharing certain characteristics. For example, in early Europe, we have river civilizations that were not quite the same scale as the Mesopotamian cradle civilizations, yet they follow the same logic of people congregating around water and then that water enabling larger groups of people to aggregate and then transport themselves, their ideas, and their culture via water, which can result in often a violent spreading of their culture, which then in turn turns into trade, into conquering and colonization. Throughout all of human history that we're aware of, there are certain elements and resources that have always held great value. For example, precious metals like gold and silver, and then gemstones, and then even herbs and spices, and other resources which can be used for the creation of materials and weapons, which are the building blocks of civilization. Personally, I try to be careful to say our current understanding of human history because, of course, there is vast amounts of information about prehistory we're unsure of, and even archaeologists always have competing hypotheses about both the migration trends of human civilization across the various continents and there is an abundance of literature about the different timelines that have been hypothesized. For example, in the Roman Empire, we had the vestiges of Rome, which was the Byzantine Empire, and then the rise of the Ottoman Empire and the various European empires, we then entered a steady pattern of cycle. Over the past 700 years, we have observed, I would say that globalization is not actually a relatively new phenomena. There are many scholars who I personally agree with who argue that we have been in about a 700-year cycle of globalization, starting with the Portuguese as the first global maritime trade empire with a global reserve currency. Throughout this cycle, we have had these currencies backed by a strong navy. Just as in the ancient world, a navy can make a small Mediterranean city-state powerful, over even some of the most advanced ancient empires, we have seen that even relatively small European countries in both landmass and human population can take advanced naval power and weapons and can conquer off far off lands and empires. Personally, I think we do a disservice by denying the cycle exists and not acknowledging that power begets power and power wants to propagate itself. Betty, while you were speaking, I I have a visor on. Literally, like, I'll send you a picture. I look ridiculous, but I have a total face covering. My eyes were shut. I was listening to you, and I feel like you just took me on a journey through through the Deddy verse of history. That was incredible, first of all. And I pictured, I don't know, like this tree almost, I don't know, this crazy tree of civilization with rivers running out of it that we like sailed through <laughs> together uh, through like these various, yeah, rises, like cycles, really. Yeah. Wow. That was incredible. Um, and one one thing that um, when you were talking about river civilizations, in fact, mm-hmm. one that came to mind was something you said, in fact, last time, and that you then kind of mentioned again that these empires are upheld through. Like marines, navies, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, aquatic military pilots of the sea. I don't know. You can maybe find a fun. Uh, I don't know. It always sounds so dreary, you know, like admiralty law or whatever. A Navy it doesn't sound very sexy, but um, I feel like there's a lot more going on with it. Do you want to expand on any of that? Absolutely. So for context, um, I did print out, so I have the exact dates. Since 1450, the global reserve currency has moved first from Portugal, then to Spain, then to the Netherlands, then to France, then to Britain, and to the United States. And the reign of these global reserve currencies always takes on an 80 to 110 year maximum cycle. What I think is important in another area of friction I've noticed that I think is more an under misunderstanding than anything else is the perception that because an empire has a peak point or you discuss a peak point or an end point, you're implying that that means the empire doesn't exist outside of that time frame. Um, people may be familiar with Ray Dalio, who has been one of these leading figures on this idea of the historical cycles of empires and their rise and fall. And I just want to reiterate that just because I've had people become very cross with me for speaking about the reign of the British Empire as the top naval power and top global reserve currency and said, how could you say that? They very clearly had an empire before, they very clearly had empire after. And I just want to reiterate that it's possible for multiple global powers to exist at once. It's possible for an empire to have a point where it had overseas and colonial holdings. And just because that's not in the time span of their peak empire, it doesn't mean you're denying that they were an empire or that they subjugated anyone. And again, this is one of those things where I think it's more a misunderstanding, which of course, you know, Twitter is a very condensed medium. You have a few characters or a few images. And I think all of us, it would behoove us to give a lot more benefit of the doubt. And just because someone says something or perhaps they say something that is maybe a little provocative, but given the short amount of time span they have, I mean, there's a short amount of character space, a short amount of time span of people, you know, it's meant to be a different form of conveying information than an entire essay that, you know, covers every possible iteration of a situation. And I think that it would help all of us if we could maybe have more of a, a common area where we're coming from, or at least to understand someone else's common area. So when they say one thing in particular, or they they make a point that perhaps you dis disagree with, you could understand that maybe it wasn't a purposeful omission or someone, you know, enacting violence through denial, but simply them not able to encompass all of the available information given the limited space. And I myself am guilty of this quite limited time span. So Many of the people who frequent this delightful free website ruled over by a fascinating man from South Africa. 
I agree with you about, I guess, is in a sense, being um, extending grace, really, is what you're describing, like to yes. uh, our fellow uh, trolls and, and anons and various denizens of the of the, of the Internet spaces. But um, yes, so I do. I do agree with that, actually. And I think um, what is unfortunate, I don't know, I, I, yeah, I experienced some of I've experienced some of this, too. And like when I uh, recently and I my instinct is to call them ops. And in my case, they absolutely were but not everybody is experiencing the you know intense harassment from a gang stop mm-hmm. as i am you know and i think you're you're right we do need to be um a bit more generous um especially because i think these systems yeah you're describing the what they're designed for like twitter is designed for this uh, and all other internet spaces are designed for micro information kind of micro consumption mm-hmm. Also for micro consumption. I really like that. It's like, it's a drip, you know, it's like an, it's water torture, really, I guess. (laughs) It's a little (laughs) disturbing, but it's also, they're instrumented for like, exactly the kind of behavior that happens on Twitter, like mob rule, like public draggings. And it's almost in a way, um, an apparatus for kind of like these cancelings and it happens on mm. every space you know it's not mm-hmm. that does it everyone's doing the same mob rule behavior <laughs> and not just in political spaces like on like literally like, like housewives facebook I, i've been there <laughs> i'll tell you they do this oh same, my goodness you know this kind of uh mob rule this cancellation and it almost seems to function in an, an extension of the security state in a way they don't have to bother with like hiring a bunch of you know uh provocateurs i don't know is there something is there possibly something to that i mean i i've tried to really say i'm not sure if people understand maybe what i'm trying to get across but i've always said that the greatest weapon they have is to have you turn against your neighbor instead of them and as long as we refuse to ever build any form of community or solidarity which is a word that has now become quite loaded. But I do think, you know, it's important for people to care about the person next to them and to have a sense of community. And, you know, these are large overarching issues are not going to be solved by, you know, having someone who said something that you felt was mildly to media you know i don't i don't know i'm not sure what the utility is it seems that the utility of these ganging up on people is to further divide everyone and to further atomize everyone from each other because it's much easier to like they say divide and conquer it's much easier to rule over people if they're all atomized they have no sense of connection or community to each other and I mean, we see this even in in public life, and I don't know this might be country in public violence. I mean, where mm-hmm. do people go when they enact public violence? They're go- they're going to schools. But why it? Why is every school? And I I know multiple. If you've gone to pick up someone from an elementary school, it's actually scary. I mean, they have multiple. Mm-hmm. doors that they buzz up even in very peaceful communities very peaceful suburb communities i mean it feels like it's hard to think that you know a school should become a fortress and then very wealthy people who fund all of these different factions and have us all squabbling you know they're just 
what there's no accountability there's no public fear and no accountability there's no fear of the public you have this entirely untouchable glass and then everyone else below and i'm really dating myself here but i mean i remember occupy wall street and seeing what was done to occupy wall street seeing what happened with provocateurs who were placed in Occupy Wall Street and seeing images of, you know, there people can look these up if they're not familiar. This is probably before a lot of people's time. I mean, you had images of the people on Wall Street who worked on Wall Street hanging out on the balconies, drinking champagne, laughing at the protesters for having things like, you know, we are the 99% and where is our say? And these very just basic, common, unifying things. And at the same time, I really do think it was the first time that any sort of fear was really felt by the people who were all over this country, which is why I think personally, like very similar to 9-11, like Occupy Wall Street to me was one of those like defining moments. And it was they decided like, no, this whole movement must be destroyed. You have to humiliate each person in it. You have to make it seem like... They have ridiculous points. You have to get all of them to turn against each other. You have to send in provocateurs who are going to make a name off of it, who are acting beyond bad faith, who are acting in concert with people who want to destroy this like actual real moment of solidarity. And then we had the Citizens United ruling. And I, I've said this before, like, I don't consider the American democracy to exist since Citizens United, because if money is speech and you can pay, you can purchase the government and then the government can print money and then the people who get that money, which is at the top, can then use that money to buy more politicians and more public opinion that's simply an oligarchy that that's what it is that that's nothing to do with a democracy or a republic not to get too <laughs> revolutionary yep. sorry it, it's always hard to pick the moment uh america stuff maybe being america like it's fun almost looks like a hobby like i know you have a 1913 theory you know like- <laughs> yes you could go anywhere, but I think Citizens United is it's fair. Uh, you were describing a lot of themes that like really touch like on things I'm passionate about. And yeah, this uh-huh. di- the, the division, the kind of the like the petty small differences that people so easily get worked up over. And you see it like that is another, you know, another thing that it serves really is to divide people with these really silly like little um, you, you see how people kind of get militant about just really like, I don't know, like today's 420. Happy 420, by the way, <laughs> Teddy. And, and there's like a bunch of, you know, discourse about weed on the timeline at a certain point people are going to have to realize that to get something accomplished, they're going to have to work with people who are kind of like them, but maybe on some things are not the same. And that's going to be... You mean I'm going to have to work with hippies? Hippies (laughs) and cops might have to work together in this case. Oh, no. If they really believe in the same thing. And And that's really what the whole point of America actually I think is like it's like spiritual purpose in my opinion is like that would happen for people to do that for those kind of goals of, of sovereignty of being free of, from uh, the, the crown and these other systems that um, still operate today but anyway whole other topic or maybe not maybe we'll get into it but I, I guess actually I like, yeah, yeah I have I have something that that 
dovetails on this idea of power and currency. Let's go there. I'll just, I'll set this up just to say, I feel like one oh, thing up that is, I guess, like um, uh-huh. the failure of storytelling is a theme that I'm picking up like in just general, like we need mm. better storytellers, I guess, in the sense of like uh, persuading people to educating people why cops and hippies can work together and should, if they do really pursue the same goals, um, better storytellers to also like the people running things to be scared of people like uh, Denny and Poolhouse, which I think they might be a little bit, frankly, but anyway, you know, we need to be better storytellers in every sense. And so no pressure, <laughs> Denny, sorry, <laughs> I put that on you but yeah no um, no it's it's say. not i think the other coin the other side of the coin of better storytellers though is i think we've all witnessed this is the abysmal state of reading comprehension in this country true which i think twitter does put into pretty stark focus sometimes and that's why sometimes i can't even become cross about something because i realize there's a a fundamental disconnect because someone is simply lacking the ability to parse text in any form. Mm -hmm. And they are an extremely, and this is not against individuals. The school system has, I even witnessed in my time from, I felt like I was getting more sophisticated instruction at like elementary school than later because we Mm -hmm. were taught this very, rigid form of thinking and i've ranted about this before but uh, i call it ap speak and it's proliferated across media where everyone presents all arguments and even articles and quote-unquote esteemed publications in the uh, 3.5 format they tell you what they're gonna say they give three points and then in their conclusion they wrap up why they're right and that's it I've seen it. How did that go, though, for BuzzFeed, I guess? I feel like they're kind of <laughs> that kind of um, journalism. And well, oopsies, I guess not. I know, but you're, it's funny. I like AP style or AP. Wait, what did you call it exactly? Oh, the the 3.5 format, because like in the essays, you have sure. to do the the five paragraphs with three in the middle as you're supporting and then your intro and conclusion. It's so funny when you first said it, I for some reason thought like AP, not Associated Press, but like AP classes, but it's the same <laughs> freaking difference. It's exactly those people. It's exactly that mm-hmm. same rigid conformity to some kind of prescripted, you know, way of doing things, which um, mm-hmm. they're not honestly like fine do that but at least i don't know do your job and i don't know hold power accountable like ask some questions like that was at least part of it at one point and actually no that's what this this style you're describing actually replaced i think that longer form of real journalism mm-hmm. even when it I was laundered you know you'd find the fact like in the 40th paragraph because it was that long you know i mean it's scary even anything you read from the 90s like a long form article from the 1990s i mean it's like chaucer in comparison to what you read today and i understand that there's multiple factors it's because the the time crunch now it's on a scale it's almost unimaginable everything is demanded to be immediate it's disseminated immediately there's little time for review there's little time to write but it's very scary just even reading a pretty standard long form article from anything in the 1990s. If you compare it to something from today or a few years ago, it's incredibly stark contrast. It's like when you watch um, any of the old 
interviews from 70s, 60s, mm-hmm. even up into the 80s, and they speak so much slower and they lose state their points. And mm-hmm. you feel like you're watching almost people from another world and they're, they take their time to articulate everything. And it could even just be a, a late night talk show appearance. And you feel like you're viewing such elegant beings compared to what happens mm-hmm. nowadays where we're all hopping and jumping and Jimmy Fallon is having convulsions on the floor and <laughs> it's a whole generation of pool houses out there it's not it's, it's supposed to just be specific spastic people like myself you know you're right, supposed to corner the market yeah you are right and when you see like c-span even from like the 90s and also not just the um elegance i guess of like the presentation but also the mm-hmm. topics it's surprising the things <laughs> that would come up. And even when they're trying to um, not kind of go there all the way, what they were permitted to touch mm-hmm. on, I feel like was way more permissive. Like in terms of going like back to Watergate, like um, mm-hmm. era, I would say like all the way through the nineties, just things would kind of squeak through uh, different authors, you know, different kinds of like maybe somewhat alternative viewpoints. We could say mm-hmm. full-blown revisionist history, but maybe alternative viewpoints were allowed on up to maybe John Birch society members and maybe even sometimes them. It was a kind of tolerant to be, uh, it was cool to be tolerant. It's absolutely a different world. Oh, and then so to tie this back to what we were speaking about. Mm. So since... The 1400s, there is a supreme naval power, and that naval power, since the genesis of globalization, is able to both protect and enforce trade, which creates immense demand for the currency of that country and allows it to have immense influence over the politics of other countries and the contours of the global stage. I think what's important, and this is tying to what we've been speaking about, is when we study history, we're almost taught that everything is is downstream of culture. But I think it's important to ask what backs that culture, what funds that culture? Why is there a demand for that culture? Culture is downstream of currency and power. And money and power utilize culture to spread and enforce its norms. We're taught this idea that certain cultures succeed and that's why they're bountiful, that the financial wealth is downstream of the supremacy of a culture, which I've always found ironic because that's actually an extremely Darwinistic belief. For example, you can't speak about Napoleon without speaking about his foray into the Mediterranean and the idea that it wasn't the French Revolution that killed France as holding the global reserve currency, but it was Napoleon. And in general, I always wish in history books, I know some might really argue against this, I think we must put the reign of global reserve currencies and the military that back them, because as I was older and studied this more myself, I realized so much of what I understood and so much what I believed about even just classical humanities and the liberal arts was actually all just downstream of military power. And that's why I think some of this, some of these arguments we have, I think we're not all coming from the same context and we're not coming from the understanding of Perhaps it is not what we believe that the supreme culture, which is somehow, even for people who are atheists, they almost have this 
religious belief that it's anointed as the supreme culture, and that's why the world must follow it. And I think as we head into this new era, which is coming, whether people want to believe it or not, that you really, we need to start becoming much more flexible and understanding perhaps that culture, discourse, all of this is downstream of wealth and power, and it's used to enforce it. Not that they are byproducts of a naturally superior system. though towards something something really powerful it's uh, this kind of implicit connection between first of all money and military which i think you're right it's obscured on purpose and so it is missed by i think a lot of people i think if i understand and maybe I, i'm gonna make a comparison maybe or an analogy or mm-hmm. world example to see maybe if you can uh validate if this is maybe a good one or akin to what you're saying no please be confident in your thoughts i think this could be useful for listeners mm-hmm. as an example possibly okay so mm-hmm. um pfizer is this big company right they do a vaccine mm-hmm. There's this big anti-vax kind of counter-narrative community, I call it, where it's, you know, driven by a lot of stories about the vaccines and COVID truth. A lot of it being, I think, very true, but it is also still, I think, a stage-managed kind of uh, culture in a sense, right? There's some guardrails on even what you say in the so-called dissonance base. Those people are really angry, you know, at Dr. Fauci and Pfizer about the, the vaccine stuff. But there is this other kind of journalism that has come through, I guess I'd say, from a few different sources that point to, like... Maybe the Pfizer contracts were maybe all done through, you know, the military, which we we know they were through warp speed. I think it's Sasha Latipovia. There's this like Russian woman. She's maybe a little sketchy. I don't know. But there's a few other sources that have um, looked into some of these documents, kind of basically pointing to the fact that Pfizer said none of this can be our fault because this is what the government wanted. We are essentially a brand name being stamped on. Actually, it's really funny when you get under the hood, a product being made by um, Litton Dianetics, which I don't know if anyone knows about that one, but it's like a same company that's involved in making weird things for the government uh, in the biosphere, I guess, for years. 
Um, and you find out a lot of DOD contracts. You find out a lot of military. Why is it all called countermeasures? You find out they're not actually really being managed through HHS at all, that HHS was kind of removed and that maybe this was being done through DHS or the intelligence community. There's this other layer to it. And still there's people who are kind of, I think, I mean, I understand why they're angry. The people at Pfizer are, you know, I think in my opinion, very culpable, Dr. Fauci, et cetera. But there's this other bigger sphere that I feel like people miss there. And that's like one maybe microcosm of, uh, I feel like maybe what you're kind of describing in this kind of grander scheme or this bigger picture that uh, of these connections that um, are shadowy and, and kind of nefarious. It's so funny you brought up countermeasure because I was thinking the whole time that it, the original order is for a countermeasure mm-hmm. and it was not for an effective or safe countermeasure. If you read the original contract, which is available, it's for a the volume of countermeasure. It was saying, in this time span, we will produce this amount of countermeasure. And then I think, as you said, it's complicated because, as you pointed out, it creates this sphere of disinformation almost. And you notice how quickly it, what started out as not even full-on rejection, but any skepticism of even people who had previously supported many vaccinations and vaccination programs, any skepticism was immediately labeled under the anti-vax umbrella. And then it immediately just, they purposely started muddying the waters constantly, which then of course drove people further because they said, well, if I am anti-vax and anti-science because I want all previous safety procedures to be followed, then yeah, fine. Maybe I actually am, or maybe I should be, or maybe I should start looking into everything else. And it creates this, it creates an arena that it traps you in. And I I don't think it's healthy for any individual or society itself. No, it's not healthy. None of it's about health. So let's just say this is a military operation, which I can link to some other sources. Um, there's a really good woman who's documented every biomedical act from like the early 1900s. She's done a lot of research on documenting the biodefense program, essentially in the United States, which is very vast and goes back probably longer than people would be comfortable knowing. It's astonishing. So I think uh, knowing that, like, why would the military, you know, even be involved in such things, I guess, in the first place? And it's chilling, I think, combined with other things that you kind of have been talking about, which involve, I guess, being on the precipice of at the end of sovereign rule as a dominant kind of power in the world. It's a little scary. I don't know. Am I being, am I being, no, No, not at all. So this is, it's, it's so, I'm so glad because I was literally just going to, we're on the same wavelength at the moment. So as we referenced, um, Ray Dalio, who is a figure if people aren't familiar look him up so he has his i've mentioned these two cycles so you have a global reserve currency cycle that tends to last 80 to 100 and not tens it does it lasts since four since the year 1450 so you know going on a 700 year cycle it lasts 80 to 110 years and the 80 to 110 year mark is the expiration zone. So I've had people argue this before. Of course, everyone, what's the start date? It is many economists will place 
the U.S. start of our global reserve currency cycle uh, around 1920 because the British Empire, which held it before the British pound, ran out of gas after World War I for many reasons. So we're coming right up to that 110-year zone in the next less than a decade now. Now, the reason I know people might say, oh, we are also converging with Ray Dalio's 250-year empire cycle. So America, 1776. So also in the next decade, we converge with this historical trend of the end of an empire. And I know this also is one of those things that causes people to say, no, America's going to last, never bet against the dollar. You know, what they're saying is that this is the, the sunset time. It's not saying America's going to disappear into thin air in 2026 or 2030, but based on about several hundred years of precedent, we are approaching the sunset. And I think people feel it. I think many people feel it, even if they don't consciously feel it. You know, you feel that subconscious pull. But uh, for me personally, as someone who really does, ironically, people think I, I actually love to look at history and I follow the historical cycles very closely. These two cycles converging over the next decade to me is pretty significant. And if you wouldn't mind, could I just read out the steps of Ray Dalio's Rise and Fall of Empire, because I think it might resonate with people. Is that okay? Of course. So he points out you have, and I'm sure as people are aware, we keep speaking about the world order. See, you have the establishment of the new empire comes. You have the establishment of the new world order, which is followed by a time of peace, prosperity, and productive debt growth. Then you have the debt bubble and big wealth gap period, followed by the debt burst and economic downturn, followed by printing money and credit, which is followed by revolutions and wars, which is followed by debt and political restructuring and ends at the new, new world order. Mr. Ray, that felt, I, I don't know, it felt like a blueprint. Unfortunately, maybe I shouldn't be optimistic, but no, I will be optimistic because what you're saying is what these uh, these theories kind of point to about the civilization or I guess empire on this bigger scale of 250 years, I guess financially on the global currency or global I guess, system, I don't know, I feel like these systems that are kind of intricate, that seem cyclical, they're predicated on this kind of framework that you outlined at the beginning, this like river civilization, these, you know, these merchant marine kind of underpinned uh, banker financial networks that kind of just persist. It's almost like, um, it's almost like the system kind of is the problem, I would say, and not necessarily the occupiers or the people who are kind of using the system at that point in time. And also, and I mean, I try... I think I get misunderstood as apocalyptic a lot. I mean, I personally, and I'm not saying I'm right or that everyone has to do this, but I actually, I feel like I have a very hopeful viewpoint because I, in my mind, it's, or maybe this is me, it, it's comforting to see these cycles. You know, civilizations rise and fall. And just because one end doesn't, one end doesn't mean that that's the end for everyone. It usually means another power rises up and then, 
unfortunately, they go through many of the pitfalls of a burgeoning wealth gap, a emergence of an oligarchy, and the very destructive act of money printing. But at the same time, then something else new rises. And, you know, through all of millennia, I mean, personally, we got through the Black Plague. People are remarkably resilient, and human civilization is very resilient. And that's why there are many uh, current phenomena I'm concerned about, you know, this various forms of doomerism, climate doomerism, zombies are going to come. 90% of our media seems to be, you know, imagining an apocalypse. But to me, I mean, the future belongs to people who can build, you know, anyone can destroy. It's very easy to destroy things, you know. I think on the micro scale, we've all witnessed this. It's pretty easy to screw up your life pretty quickly. It's, it's scary, but to build something always takes far more time, far more effort. It's brick by brick. So I mean this in a hopeful way. I think it would be good if we started to take a, a much more positive approach to all of these problems. And it, I think it's very, I think it's very dangerous to spread, especially to young people and very impressionable people this idea that oh well you don't have a future and if you don't do this then everything's over and you know I I don't think that helps anyone and it really concerns me especially when young impressionable people are told by people who are often have financial interests or are making money off of a problem that it's the end of the world if they don't listen to them um I often think that it almost feels like we live in one giant doomsday cult. Everything is some form of doomsday from religious doomsday cult, scientific doomsday cult. You know, everyone's in on the on the doomsday cult. And I try to always remember that there, there's a reason, you know, this sounds strange. And as someone who's obviously I'm myself, I'm totally pulled or compelled to maybe some of the darker elements of human society and human history but uh for the same reason that you're pulled to that there is usually i think there's a way to make that positive and to think well obviously if you're drawn to it or interested in it it's because you understand that there's more there there's more to glean from it and there there's more potential in that so personally like i think that's an important message and i think maybe I ho- I try to convey it. I think I perhaps don't always convey that so clearly to people. They think I'm attempting to tell them to just tune out, drop out, and <laughs> go be a hippie or something along those lines. No, that was beautiful. And no, we don't want to do what kind of uh, Michael Hoffman says. is We don't want to do revelation of the method here. We're trying to have some kind of vision for uh, the future. And something you said just now made me realize, yeah, I was a little wrong. It's not about replacing maybe the river system of civilization. Maybe that's ambitious, but maybe it's more about... Um, claiming it for ourselves and being the kind of the seers of the destiny and building and using that system and working with the strange alien beings that operate <laughs> there or whatever, maybe not. I don't know. We can all be Pope one day ourselves. That's the, I think the message I want <laughs> in part is oh. it's possible. We can all, we all have the chance to just, I think be the makers of, makers of our own destiny. There's something about the world that's, that's magical and people should um, just look for it. You'll find it. Do you mind? I think this Great. might be a fun place to end. So speaking yeah, about, uh, historical cycles and esoteric religious cults. Um, so I I printed this quote out earlier based on what we were speaking about, about the rise and fall of empires. And I'm not sure if people are familiar, but 
I find this a kind of interesting message. There is the concept of the third Rome. So after the fall of Rome and the fall of the Western Empire, then you had Constantinople. Then after the fall of Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire, which was a vestige of Rome, there is an idea that a third Rome rose, and that was Moscow. And there's a quote, all power has its derivation from God. The Russian czar, however, was granted a special significance, distinguishing him from the rest of the world's rulers. He is a successor of the Caesars of the Eastern Empire, the founders of the very creed of the faith of Christ. Herein lies the mystery of the deep distinction between Russia and all the nations of the world. Beautiful. Hey, oh my goodness. Thank you so much. You're a champ, Daddy. That was beautiful. And a perfect place, I think, to close. Actually, no, I will say one quick thing. I'll just no, say please. That. You know, we um we do live in kind of a, it is a death call. And then eh. But at the same time, it feels like permanent Jonestown sometimes, right? Every day. But I'll say <laughs> I this. Com- I understand that feeling completely. Yeah, you know, it is. There's a, it's a death drive. It's, and we talked about this before, like an anti-nature drive, which is kind of, I think, mm-hmm. the same thing, really, in a sense. And I, uh, but, you know, Jonestown, I lived near to the People's Temple <laughs> building. And Ooh. it's, uh, but that was school. And maybe I don't mm-hmm. have a comment on what kind of school it is, if it's good or not. The point is the broader symbol and maybe metaphor that things, uh, you know, that aren't great the institution, the building, it's brick, you know, it's still there and it's used for something else. And maybe we can, you know, do the same thing with the uh, the tools of civilization that we've inherited mm-hmm. from some pretty wackadoodle people, in my opinion. <laughs> Daddy, thank you so much. It is late. You are such a champ for being up. Uh, joining me on the East Coast. I'm actually facing West. Are you facing East right now by any chance? I'm at a place called the end of the world. So the only place to look is east. I'm uh, at the tip of the Atlantic Ocean right now. I'm right here at the, uh, we'll just say at the Golden Gates. I'm facing west for sure. (laughs) Daddy Abulhouse back to back across the nation. Perfect. Unlock. Unlock. Don't worry, people. Just get Mm -hmm. excited. Don't be, don't be scared. We're we're going to, we're going to take care of it. Um, Daddy, where can people find you online? Uh, as of now, just on my Twitter page at Audette, zero D-D-E-T-T-E. Now that I notice there's a little uh, hash mark through the zero, one of Elon's new inventions. When did that start? Interesting. Hmm. I very did- recently. I'm assuming it was for various forms of maybe people trying to, you know, impersonate. So hmm. it, I feel like it looks cheesy, but I promise I, I didn't do it. It's just there. And I have... I have projects I want to work on. I want to elucidate some of these various ideas into long form because I think it may express it to people more clearly. But for now, follow Daddy if you dare. Mm, follow Daddy if you dare. It is worth the follow. And she's giving everything already there. So anything you build on, we will welcome with open arms, Daddy. Thank you. And you were very, very clear this evening. Uh, I appreciate the gift that you've given me and my listeners. Like that, we went on a journey tonight, everyone, through like the history. Yeah. And it was. It was a round trip, right? We got everyone. Yeah, I think it worked out. Me being a little loopy helped. I really started getting philosophical there. And I've never not been loopy a second in my life. So it was perfect uh, synergy for sure.